Turn, if you would, to Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3. I did not start out this week thinking I was going to be in Genesis chapter 3. But the Lord really impressed upon my heart that given the world in which we live and given the difficulties that are all around us, given the struggle that we see across our seas on all continents, and given the political chaos that has gone on in our country, sometimes our world just does not make sense. And sometimes the things that we see championed on television or coming in our public school system or even sometimes we find in our own families just discourages us and we feel a sense of what's going to explain this? How can I get help? And how can I make sense of the sadness and the ugliness that I see in the world around me and maybe the moral chaos and anarchy that I see every day I walk out the door and you don't have to go very far to see it. And I just felt like we need a word from the Lord in Genesis 3 to help us make some sense of it. So let's come before the Lord and pray. And then we'll get into our text today. Heavenly Father God, this is your word. Lord, your word is reality shaping. It reminds us who we are and whose we are. It reminds us, Lord, of the greatest problems that we face. And it reminds us of what is really going on in the world around us, what's going on in our families, what's going on in our country, what's going on across seas, what's going on in wars, and what's going on in the great struggle with sin that we have and that we have not escaped this side of heaven. And sometimes things just get blurry and foggy and confusing, and we lose ourselves in it. And Father, I pray that you would bring a word today that would bring clarity and would bring hope and would bring encouragement and would bring medicine to our souls and that you would help us get perspective and that the Spirit of God would take over and that you would pour forth your word to meet us where we're at. And whatever urgent needs in our soul, that you would do that surgery in our hearts to help us. Because we need you, Lord. We need you. We need your grace. We need your encouragement. We need your favor. And we need the truth. And so we pray that you would help us now and that you would anoint this word as it goes forth. In Jesus' name. Amen. So I was thinking about puzzles this week and the greater the size of the puzzle you know if you got like a thousand piece puzzle and you throw all those pieces over the table and you're scattering them around and if you don't have that box top you're just looking at all the pieces and you're looking at all the stuff and it doesn't fit together it's kind of a just a jumbled mess and you're wondering how am I going to put this thing together how am I going to sort out what this piece doesn't feel like it fits this piece and and I, I can't even see what's going on here and there's confusion and so i i don't like puzzles for that reason because i feel like it's so much to take in until you get that box top right until you get that picture of what the puzzle should be you're going to have no clarity or no hope or no encouragement to finish this puzzle and pretty soon you start putting it together. You're looking at the picture and you're putting pieces together. And all of a sudden, like 
clarity's emerging. Oh, I've got the corners here. I found the edges. Oh, I see the plane. It, it seems like I'm putting a piece of, of, of this puzzle together and the picture becomes clearer and clearer and more focused because you have the big picture. You have the bird's eye view. And when you look at the world today, that's exactly why we need Genesis 3. If we don't have a divine word from God that tells us what went wrong in the world, then we're going to look at our landscape and just be totally devastated. We're going to be confused. We're going to be scratching our heads. How can this be? I was reading headlines this week, and there was a pediatrician who was involved in a murder-for-hire scam, or a murder-for-hire situation. She wanted to murder her ex-husband, and so she tried to hire a hitman to do it. Highly educated, devoting her life to helping children, but she cannot escape the fall of mankind. She cannot escape her sin. She cannot escape the brokenness that came in in Genesis 3. And none of that makes sense when you look at the headlines unless you know the box top. Or one state I was reading this week is going to introduce into the men's restroom feminine products. Because we need to have feminine products in a male restroom because you never know if somebody's going to self-identify as a male and will need those products. We've lost touch with what it means to be man and woman. And so stuff like that makes sense in our world when it's totally nonsensical. But you know that if you don't have Genesis 3, you can't make sense of that. Because it's clear in verse 24 and 25 of chapter 2, Therefore the man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked, and they were not ashamed. Both sexes represented. There's no confusion. Or you go back one chapter and you see uh, verse 26 um, and 27, the, then God said, let, man, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish in the sea and over all the livestock and the birds of heaven and over all the earth and over all the creeping things. So God created man in his own image and in the image of God, he created him male and female. He created them. Total clarity about the design of God for men and women and the distinct sexes. And yet, today, all of that is up for grabs in our world. But there's a reason for it, brothers and sisters. There's a reason why there's confusion because they don't have the box top. And so anything goes in the book of Judges. It was a time when there was no king in the land and they had rejected the revelation of the book. And it says that every man did what was right in his own eyes. And such is the world we live in. I don't want to see the book. I don't want to hear from God's perspective. And so it's a shaking off of God's good designs. And I'm afraid that this is not a problem just outside of the church, but in the church. There is confusion in the church around gender and around sex and around what is good and right and true and about marriage and and things like that it's crept into the church because we're living in a world that's constantly trying to encroach and so we need the clarity of the box top to break into our hearts to remind us afresh who god is 
and who we are in light of that. And so I found myself desperately needing to go to Genesis 3. Desperately needing to remember what happened. To remember why things look the way they are. Why they look so bleak. Why we need the help of God. And listen, brothers and sisters, you will find yourself in the mirror of Genesis 3. It's not just the things that we see out there. Genesis 3 shows us our hearts. Genesis 3 reminds us that we're fallen people in a fallen world with a real devil and a real enemy who holds sway over the minds of men and women in this world. And until we've been rescued by Jesus, we'll be like the, those following the fiddler on the roof. If you've ever seen that movie, the fiddler plays and people just follow and they get in line. That's what's happening. That's what the devil's doing in the world. That's what the Bible says, that the, that the prince of the power of the air is in control of the sons of disobedience. And we were all by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, in the great love with which He loved us, if we're in Christ, made us alive together in Christ. By grace we've been saved. That's how we get out of the world and into God's family that we call the church. That's how we get rescued from sin's dominion and have it broken so we see things clearly. That's how the glasses come on, the glasses of Scripture, and you see the world the way it truly is instead of being blinded by the prince of darkness who's blinded the minds of unbelievers from seeing the truth of the Gospel and seeing the way the world is. And there was a great burden in, on my heart this week because I'm thinking to myself, this is a heavy message. This is a message that describes the world at large. And it's writ large everywhere you go. And so we need to make sense of this. Whether we're young or whether we're old. Whether we're at the schoolyard and there's confusion. We need God's Word to help us and to hold up a mirror to remind us that we need rescue. So that's what we're going to do today. We're going to look into God's Word and get help. So let's look at this. This is history. And this is what shapes the way in which the world is today. So if you want to make sense of it, this is what we need, the divine perspective. Genesis chapter 3 and verse 1 says this, Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God has, had made. And he said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the trees of or we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God has said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. And you'll recall that's not quite what God said. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate and she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. And then the eyes of both of them were opened and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig, fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. Verse 8, And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God 
called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And perhaps that is the very question that needs to be asked in our modern world in the day in which we live. Where are you? Perhaps our world is still stuck in the trees, hiding from God, listening to the echoes thundering in their ears as they live apart from His will and His ways. Where are you? And they want to shake off. And such were all of us at one point in one time, if we consider it deeply. So I want to look real quick at a roadmap that's going to help us kind of navigate through these nine verses. And we're going to see the very first thing is that we have a crafty enemy. We've got a crafty enemy. See it right there in verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. Now we need to think about this for a second. The, the, the serpent was a created being. So we don't have any kind of Star Wars light versus darkness here in equal power and equal strength. Satan is not the equal of God but on the opposite team, right? Satan is a created being who fell and became wicked. And he is nothing compared to God. He is, God is creator. The serpent was created. So we got to observe that the one in authority over all the world truly is God. Even though this Slithering serpent has come and slithered his way in and sought to control men and women through deception, boys and girls through deception. We need to know who has the authority over planet Earth. But this is a sad day that we see. It's a day when an enemy rose up. There was no enemy before this. There was no evil before this. There was no sin before this. Save the sin of the serpent rebelling against the authority of God. And he comes in on this day as a crafty deceiver. And that word crafty has that idea of, of wise but also the, the overtones of deception, of, of a cunning deceiver, of somebody who's seeking to swindle and dupe, but who's extremely intelligent. He's a crafty enemy because he's wise, because he's, he's, he's intelligent, because he's a supernatural being that knows God's word better than most of us. In fact, I would say better than all of us. And he knows how to twist the words of God and the ways of God to distort reality. And that, brothers and sisters, is what we see before us today. And that is what we see in the quiet of the night when we go into discouraging thoughts. And we begin to to dialogue, and we begin to dialogue with discouragement. Well, here's a dialogue starting, and it started this day when a crafty enemy came in scheming for a way to undo humanity and to thwart the work of God and the ways of God. Listen to how Jesus once spoke of the devil as he was rebuking the Pharisees for being like him. He says, you are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning, and he does not stand in the truth because there's no truth in him. And when he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. He has been doing it from the beginning. And lies are the way 
that he does business. That's, the, that's what he's giving out on street corners. That's what he's giving out on governmental levels. That's what he's giving out in the quiet of the night when you are discouraged. He will whisper lies to you and he will seek to divide you from your God. Or he'll seek to tell you you can be your own God. If the whole world lies under the sway of the evil one, then we realize exactly how great a deceiver this evil foe of humanity is. He's no friend to humanity. He's a foe. He's an enemy. He's come in from outside. He's come in to contradict God's Word. He's come in to distort reality. He's come in, and He may come into your life to do that very thing. And the only way we can stand against the prince of darkness is with the light of God's Word. Is with the book. And that's where the action is at in the temptation right before the fall of Adam and Eve. It comes down to what we believe about God's Word. And there's a dialogue going on, and now there's another word coming from the serpent. Listen to it. He said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Did God actually say that? That's how the, the enemy of our souls comes at us. There's a, there's a chipping away at the clarity of God's Word. There's a chipping away at the truthfulness of God's Word. There's a chipping away at the credibility of God's Word. Is it really God's Word? Did He really say it like that? Does He really mean it? And we can be tempted, brothers and sisters, to not take God's Word seriously or to put it on a shelf and not look at it. And perhaps the account before us is reminding us that where our hearts are when we think of God's Word, what we do with God's Word makes all the difference. If we see God's Word as the friendly signpost warning us against error and warning us against folly and putting forward wisdom and putting forward God Himself, well then we hear the slithering serpent when He speaks. But ultimately, Eve is listening. She's listening, she's considering, she's hearing the question, did God actually say this? Did God actually say that you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And notice there's, there's kind of a, a, a distortion there. If you go back to chapter 2 and verse 16, it says, And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, just don't eat of the one tree. Here we have Satan flipping the script and saying, you can't eat of anything, really? It's as if he's calling into question the character of God. And whenever we sin, brothers and sisters, we do two things. We begin to question God's word and, and, and the clarity of it and the truthfulness of it. And then we begin to doubt the goodness of God. Is He really good? Is He withholding something from me? Is he, is he taking something away that I need, that I deserve, that I should have? Is He not giving me the full story? Is He not giving me what I need? I've got to run somewhere else. I've got to go somewhere. And His words, the serpent's words always undercut the authority of God's Word, and the character of God's goodness. And if you think over your own life, when you fall short, when you fall into sin, you doubt those very things.
How many adulterers thought? I mean, God's not really serious about this one man, one woman thing for life. I should be happy after all. It's okay, right? God would want me to be happy. Or you hear the same, the same kind of thinking in the, the LGBTQ movement, right? Well, God would want me to be happy. He'd want me to live this way. He'd want me to live a life given over to my passions. Or as the famous song calls us to, I did it my way, Frank Sinatra, I did it my way. That's always the way the enemy comes. He's always trying to get us to go another way, to listen to another voice, not the voice of God in the Scriptures. Therefore a man shall lead his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and they weren't ashamed. And what does the serpent do? He comes at Eve. And he begins to distort the design of God and he's trying to put a wedge between Eve and Adam. And before the account is over, we see Adam and Eve throwing loincloths over themselves because they know they're naked and they're ashamed and they're running and they're hiding and their relationship is crumbling and they're wondering what happened. He promised us everything. He promised us that we'd be like God, but nothing's happening. The opposite is happening. And that's how he comes to us. That's how the enemy comes in your heart. That's how he comes to you to seduce you and discourage you and get you to chase lies and get you to go after poisonous fruit. He's crafty and he's a deceiver and he's a dangerous dialogue partner. And so you see that descent going on, if you look with me at verse 2, the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but God has said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. So now there's a reasoning, there's a response, there's a sense in which she's, she's trying to quote what she recalls of God's word, but, but even her response is not quite right. She's saying, you know, that we shouldn't touch it. So she adds a prohibition. She adds something more strict. She adds something to God's word. She doesn't quote God accurately. And it, there's a sense in which she's beginning the inroads to legalism. Well, God said you can't even touch it. You ought not even be around it. Lest you die. Instead of the certainty, it's sort of kind of, well, lest you die. But God said, you'll surely die if you eat of it. And then notice verse 4, but the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. What is the second thing we see the serpent doing? He undercuts the authority of God's word and character. And then he flat out denies the justice of God and the judgment of God for sin. He says, God is not going to do that. God's lying to you. He would never judge you. He would never bring the consequences that he's threatened there. And, and, and ultimately, there's a sense in which Satan is trying to kind of twist things and make it seem as, as if, hey, God is this one who's trying to prevent you from having all the joy in the world. He's a cosmic killjoy. And ultimately, he's trying to keep you from these things. And if you have it, he's not going to do anything about it. But ultimately, we remember just in chapter 2 that every single tree he had provided for their good. He put Adam and Eve in a paradise and he made them to rule and work it and, and, and garden it. So they're gardeners and they're priests in the temple of Eden caring for the garden 
with everything they need in perfect fellowship with God and one another, ruling over the world. And what does Satan do? He comes at that. He flips it upside down and wants to bring them into bondage so he can rule them. And so he can hold sway over the world. And in the garden, that's exactly what happened. They begin to call into question God's judgment and his justice and his goodness. And they listen to the lie. Verse 5, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. So now there's a sense in which the serpent is saying, and he says that to us, brothers and sisters. He, sa he says, listen, if you do what you want, ultimately you can be your own God. You can define your reality. You can do what you think is right. You can be your own God. You don't need him. Shake off the oppressive shackles of God and cut loose and live your life for your glory. Not for God's glory. And instead of singing how great is our God, you start singing how great am I? How great am I? I'm going to do what I want. And how many of us know what happens when we begin to believe that lie and we go our own way and we become in bondage? Because we thought we could be our own gods. And that's what you see in the world around us. You see a sense in which people are going after what they think is right in their own eyes and in their own way. And they're destroying themselves. There would be no bondage. There would be no addiction. There would be no broken marriages. There would be no suffering, starvation, and evil in the world if we could be our own gods and it worked. The very things that fall apart in Genesis chapter 3 are the very things that have fallen apart all around us and we're in the wreckage of a world totally corrupted by sin because we've gone our own ways and God is saying to us today, where are you? Where are you? Just as he said to Adam. And he finds us hiding in the trees. And that's what we see when we look around us. There's a hiding going on. There's a hiding from God. There's a hiding from his ways. There's a hiding from his truth. I don't want to hear it. I don't want to see it. I want to do my own thing. And that's why. Christianity and the claims of the Bible are in the crosshairs today, right? That's why to hold a biblical view of who we are and what we're meant to be and God's design and God's goodness and God's holiness and God's greatness, when you hold these things, your scene is out of touch. Because the wisdom of the world would tell a different story because it came slithering into a garden so long ago. And it started when the serpent said, did God actually say? And it continued when he said, you surely won't die. You can be your own God. And then we see it moved from conversation to action and consequence. Look at it in verse 6. So the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and the tree was desired to make one wise. And she took its fruit and she ate and she gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. And then the eyes of both of them were opened and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. Do you see the progression of sin there? There's a sense in which she sees it with her eyes. 
She sees its desire to be good. There's a physically attractive thing. This fruit looks good. This fruit looks amazing. This fruit looks like it's something good. The bait always comes with a hook underneath it, right? It looks beautiful on the outside, but the hook is the lure. And she does not see the hook. It seems good for food. It's a delight to the eyes. And it even promises wisdom. And before long, that progression has taken on a life of its own. And it's, she's eating it. And then she's giving it. It's, she's rushing to give it to her husband. And he eats it. And then their eyes are opened and they see the world a totally different way. All of a sudden, they sense their sin. All of a sudden, they sense they've fallen short. They sense their nakedness. They sense their shame. There's a, there's a reality going here in which sin brings about a new way to look at the world a redefinition of everything in life. But it can never deal with shame because it's the cause of shame. It's the cause of guilt. It's the cause of separation from God. It's the cause of our alienation from one another and from God and from the world around us. It's the cause of wars. What does James tell us? Why why are there wars and fights and struggles and quarrels among you? Because you desire and you do not have, so you covet. We want what we want and we'll fight till we'll get it. And that same word is used here when the woman is desiring it. In verse 6, it says it was a delight to her eyes and she, the, the tree was desired to make her wise. That word for desire is the word for covet. Coveting began in the garden. And it was spawned in the mind of Satan when he wanted God's authority and he was kicked out of heaven. And he's using that same lie Go for it, and you will be happy. So why do I bring you to this today? Why do I bring us to this very sad day, as one children's book said? It's a very, very, very sad day. It's a very, very depressing day. It's a day that had horrific consequences. And one sin plunged the world into a curse. One Adam plunged the world into a curse. But God would send another Adam. And He would do it by reminding us in Genesis that first, He was going to call out in grace and call out in kindness and call out in a glorious, gracious confrontation. He was going to call to Adam. He was going to call to Eve as they're hiding. Look at verse 8. They're hiding. They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord among the trees of the garden. There was a sense in which they were running now from God. They enjoyed fellowship with God and now they're running. Have you been there? Have you ever experienced a sense where you were on the run? Maybe you're there today. You're on the run in some way. You're on the run. You've been hiding among the trees and God is speaking to you. And there's a sense in which you're afraid when he was meant or he had meant to make you for fellowship. And now there's a fear There's a trepidation. There's a sense in which something's wrong between you and Him. And now they're on the run in the garden instead of walking with God in the garden. And so much of today could be characterized as men and women hiding among the trees. I remember... When I was growing up, we uh, 
we would play hide and seek. I lived in a cul-de-sac. And there was a sense in which, like, from 6 p.m. to midnight, we would literally play hide and go seek all night long. And the best place to hide was this sewer. And it was a sewer pipe, so you had to climb over the back of a wall, come through this sewer pipe, and you could be looking out through the rain gutters, and it was the perfect place. Nobody could find you. would be there for, like, hours in a, in a rain gutter, totally covered in gook, you know, but it meant I wasn't going to get found out. And something like that's going on here. There's a sense in which they're thinking, hey, they're in the trees. They're hiding. God can't see it, but He sees. And clearly He knows, and it's for their benefit. He calls out to to Adam and He says, where are you, Adam? And of course, the problem with hiding in a sewer pipe is there's only one way in and one way out. So once they know where you are, the jig is up. (laughs) There's no way to get out and you're going to get caught. And ultimately, there's a sense there in this account when they were meant to be walking and flourishing and guarding and keeping the garden. Now they're hiding in the midst of the very trees that they had fallen from grace. They're hiding from the one who loves them. They're hiding from the one who made them. They're hiding from the one they need. And God calls out. He calls out to them and He says, where are you? And He's not doing that because He needs more information. Where are you, Adam? Where are you? That could be the question of the ages. Because when we live in a fallen world, when we are beset by sin ourselves, when we have alienated ourselves from God, the question of where are you becomes the most important question you could ever hear from God. Where are you today? And ultimately, God was speaking to Adam as a kind father seeking to bring out and draw out a wayward son in order to rescue him. And all through this account, as you read it, there's no responsibility being taken. The man blames his wife. The wife blames the serpent. And ultimately, the blame shifting, instead of acknowledging our need for God, started in this garden too. And we've all done that, right? What husband or what wife in here has not shifted blame in that argument in the living room? What what son or what daughter has not shifted blame to their brother or sister We've learned it long ago. And the echoes of its reality are lived out and playing out writ large today for us in our own hearts. And God is kind enough to record this history to break in and shape reality for you so that you can hear God asking you in these very pages, where are you? And then He points you to hope. Because before it's through, God will say in verse 15, as He pronounces a curse on the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring, and he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. And that offspring is picked up in the New Testament and it's the one that God promised from of old who would come from the tribe of Judah who would be born of David in his lineage and would be born of Mary, virgin born in in her womb. And ultimately, God would bring into the world a Savior who is Christ the Lord. He would bring one who would smash the serpent's head, though he would be bruised on his heel. 
And that imagery right here in the garden reminds us that there was a cost on the cross. Jesus was slain. He was crucified. His heel was bruised. But oh, how He crushed the devil's head and He can deliver all mankind from darkness. He can deliver you when you hear God saying, where are you, O Adam? Where are you? And maybe He's saying your name today. You can be delivered with the knowledge of Jesus Christ because He's the Prince of Peace. Only the Prince of Life can conquer the death-dealing snake in the garden. Only the Prince of Life can get, give hope beyond the grave. Only the Prince of Life can renew your thoughts and your mind and your heart and clean you and take your shame and your guilt and your discouragement. He doesn't leave you in the garden. He takes you from that garden and makes you totally new. He doesn't leave us hiding in the trees. He says, where are you? Come to me. He's the seeking, saving God. And He sent His Son into the world to seek and to save that which is lost. He's saying to you today, where are you? Will you come? Will you respond? Will you listen? Will you hear the voice of God calling to you in the cool of the day that He can rescue you? And some may need to hear that today. Some may be tragically lost. Some may be hiding behind a particular tree. And they're hearing God speak. And they're hearing God draw. And they're hearing the power of the Son of God who came to seek and to save the lost, summoning them to Himself. If that's you, dear friend, today could be the day you're rescued. Because this world doesn't make sense apart from this book. But this book reminds us the mess we're in and it points to the Savior who came to rescue us from our sins. He came to pierce the darkness with His radiant light and He may be speaking to your heart today saying, where are you? Where are you? Come out from the tree. Run to Me. And of course, we see God mercifully in verse 21 the lord god made for adam and for his wife garments of skins and he clothed them he said take off the fig leaves stop going with the fig leaves stop going with the man-made religion stop going with the self-salvation project stop going with that and i will clothe you and Thousands of years later, He sent the Prince of Life into the world to die on a cross to bear the wrath of God for you and for me so that you might be clothed with the righteousness of Jesus by faith. No longer needing the fig leaves because you've run to God and He's clothed you with the majestic righteousness of Jesus Christ. This is the greatest news in all the world. You've got to feel the horror of Genesis 3 to feel the joy of John 3. For God so loved the world, He gave His only begotten Son that whoever believes on Him should not perish but have everlasting life. Have you heard God saying, where are you today? And have you run to Him afresh? If you are a believer, a blood-bought child of God, this is the most profound news you can take into your heart and remember and preach to yourself every day when you get discouraged that you're living in a world that seems to be twisted upside down. And this is the greatest news for anybody in sin, no matter how far gone they are. We preach this news to homosexuals. We preach this news to lesbians. We preach this news to gender-confused people. We preach this news to people who are struggling in their marriages. We preach this news to people who are lost without hope in this world. We preach this news because there's no other news that can change the bad news for you and for me and for them. 
So read Genesis 3 and be reminded why we need to bring the Gospel to the world. And brothers and sisters, I preach this Gospel to you today because this Gospel needs to go from here into the world, into your families, into your friendships, into your workplace, into your spheres of influence. And it's the only thing that can flip a heart from being upside down to right side up. It can take unrighteousness and clothe it with righteousness. Let's come before the Lord and pray and ask God to minister to our souls now as we sit before this news. Father, this has been such a burden on my heart this week. I feel like this text is so deep. There's so much here. There's so many little profound things that, that we can't get into. But Lord, we're reminded of the main thing that we need Jesus Christ to rescue us from this mess, this mess of Genesis 3, this, this twisted serpent who rules the world. And I thank You that Jesus Christ came back to defeat Him, to stomp on His head. And one day, He will be thrown into the lake of fire and every single person who's followed the Lord Jesus will be brought into eternal glory. And all, all death and suffering will be no more. All sin will be totally annihilated. And there will just be glory for the people of God. And there was nothing Adam and Eve could do to clothe themselves. But God, you clothed them and you pointed forward to the one who could clothe us, who could cover our shame, who could clean us. And maybe you're here today and the Spirit has spoken to you and, and you need to get honest before God. And I'm just going to ask you to just raise your hand in the air and I'd love to pray for you. If that's you, if the Spirit has been speaking to you, get prayer. Be honest before God. Bring it into the light. Ask, ask the Lord to help you. I'd love to pray for you in that very thing. You feel the Lord speaking to you and you'd like prayer. And if you are just feeling discouraged and you're reminded afresh of God's great love for you, Father, I just pray that you would help us, Lord, when we are discouraged that the light of God would break in and remind us of the glorious gospel that rescues sinners in need. And I pray, Father, that Genesis 3 would always remind us of the great price that was paid on Calvary's cross. There is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins. And that very fountain brings life to all who will believe. Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name, I pray. Amen.